You're listening to a sermon series by Grace City Church, a church plant in Green Square in Sydney. For more information about us, visit gracecity.com.au. Real privilege to do this. Um, hey, as Matt was sharing earlier last week, we, we finished off a series, it was a topical series. And what we were doing there, we were noticing some things going on in society and we were speaking the Bible into them, analyzing them, but speaking the Bible into them, which is something we think is really important. But starting from next week and really today, we're coming back to our bread and butter at church, which is starting with the word of God, irrespective of what an issue is or a topic is, and letting it flow out and speak into our lives. Um, but before we start in our series in Philippians next week, we're going to take a bit of a detour. We're going to stop by the Gospel of Luke. We do this sometimes in between series. And we do it because when we come to the Gospels, we really come face to face with Jesus. Face to face with Jesus, we see what he's like. We hear his voice and um, it's a really beautiful thing to do. There's really nothing like immersing yourself in the story of Jesus and seeing what he's like. Now feel free over the next couple minutes to pull out your phone or a notepad if you ever want to write something down. Definitely not because I think I have great ideas, but because our conviction is that this is the Word of God. This is the Word of God. And He uses moments like this to speak to you, to challenge you, to encourage you, to build you up. So maybe just be conscious of that as we do this. Um, Today we're going to land into a section of Luke, which scholars have often called On the Road with Jesus. On the Road with Jesus. And what makes this section between chapters 9 and 19 so fascinating is that Uh, Jesus seems to be surrounded by people who have ordered and arranged their lives in very, very different ways. Very, very different ways from all kinds of society. Um, It's a group of diverse opinions, but what they share is a curiosity about Jesus and what he's teaching them. It's like they stick their head in wondering, hey, can I learn something from this guy? And here in chapter 12, where we're going to land in a moment, people are sticking their head into a moment where Jesus is teaching specifically about the future, specifically how they think about it and how they organize their lives because of it. That's really the key idea for today, the future. Um, I want to give you a little bit of a sneak peek um, from the passage so far, just because I think it'll help frame our time together. And I think that if you get this, you actually get the whole passage. Here's what it says. Um, You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. I'll say it again. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. You see, so much of Jesus' teaching in his life over a bit over 30 years was, was focused on the future. He was teaching about the future. And the picture and the promise of the future he shared was a future where he would come again, make all things right, put an end to evil. And so he says, be ready. Be ready. And here in our passage, he's showing people what it looks like to be ready for that moment. Now, just before we get into the passage, um, I've been doing a little bit of thinking about us and our context, um, and specifically how how we tend to relate to the future just to see if it would help us in any way before we dig in to what Jesus says here. And there's two aspects of what I found that I want to share with us. Um, Here's the first thing I found out. I found out that compared to many other countries, Australia ranks very, very low in our future, long-term future planning. Um, I looked at this research by, what is it, the Hofstede Insights. Here's a snapshot of a comparison tool between different countries. Here we go. 
Um, I've compared us between China and the United Kingdom. Long-term orientation, we rank extremely low. I mean, you can pull this up in your own time, Hofstede Insights, compare us to a bunch of different countries, but China's 87, we're at 21. Now, that's interesting just in and of itself, but I wanted to go one step further. I mean, what about when we do think and plan for the future? I mean, we have to do it eventually, otherwise we're just living in the, pre in the present. Um, we obviously have to do it sometimes. So my question is, when we do plan for the future, how do we typically do it? Well, the second thing I found out from a number of sources is that there's typically four ways that people relate to the future. Um, they're a bit like personality types, so I guess you can figure out which one you are. Apparently, you have the futurists. The futurists. They're so future-oriented that they practically live there. Um, they're always moving forward, and sometimes they just struggle to be present. You have the dreamers. They dream about the future, but they rarely ever plan, oh, as I say it, it's me. Yeah. <laughs> the avoiders. The avoiders, they avoid thinking about the future altogether because it's too uncertain, it's not worth it, just, just, just avoid it. And then fourthly, you have the reactors. And the reactors, they're happy enough just to be in the present and be passive with a smile on their face. Now, maybe you know exactly which one you are, or maybe you're somewhere in between. But I think the reality is that we change in how we relate to the future, depending on how, what we know or feel about it. For example, when we're disappointed about our life circumstances, we say, okay, I need a vision and I need a plan. I need a vision and a plan for the future. Or when we get burnt by our future plans, we say, okay, I need to just slow down. I need to be present or I'm going to wake up in 30 years and not know where the time went. And it's basically a cycle of us doing everything we can to not be disappointed, left empty-handed, or regretful. And I guess that's exactly where the problem is. It's just so hard to know whether you've got it right. It's so hard to know whether you have a healthy relationship to the future or not. Whether you've planned well, been realistic enough, read the market, had a blind spot, considered the factors of life. You can never really be sure of yourself. So I just want to come to the Bible as we're doing this, and I just want to say, Jesus, you talk about the future a lot. You talk about the future a lot. And I just want to know, is there a particular way you would have us relate to the future? How do you want us to think about it, feel about it, plan for it? Now, as we look at Jesus' answer to that here, I want to show you that there's a way of relating to the future that's not going to leave you disappointed or regretful. It'll show you how to not waste your life. There's two kind of parts to Jesus' answer here, which we're going to use as our headings. The first is a call to a future-oriented focus. And secondly, a call to a future-oriented alignment. And we'll explain those as we go. And we're just going to work through the passage. So as I said, the first way Jesus wants us to relate to the future is with a future-oriented focus. And he uses the details of a parable, which is a story, uh, uh, to get that point across. And we're just going to work through bit by bit. Here, here's what Jesus says first. He says, Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. So he starts with a really clear instruction. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning. 
Now, both of these things, those two little images you have at the start, they're quite typical images from Jewish culture. Being dressed ready, it's the language of gird up your loins, like when you're ready to do work. They wore long robes. I'm half Persian. I know this. <laughs> Secondly, the lamps burning. It's, it's a classic symbol they have in their literature, in their culture of be ready, be attentive for this thing. And just together, they combine as a, as a visual image of preparedness. But Jesus pushes us on, um, uh, and he leads us straight into a parable. I want you to try and picture it, as, I just, as, I, as we just read. There is a... I'll go back to it, actually. Can we go back to that? I don't know how to go backspace. There's a master at a wedding, and his servants are back home looking after the place. But they're not just waiting... They're watching carefully for him. So that as soon as he comes, they can welcome him warmly. And I think that is the first little thing that we actually have to notice as we read this. This is not a passive waiting that these servants are doing. There is an intentional focus on the master's return. Now, the next natural question is, well, why? Well, why the heck would you wait like that? Uh, that's a long wait. Um, well, I think, I think it's because they have a really good, good master. Have a look, verse 37. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on, on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. I mean, can we just take a moment and accept that this is not normal? This is not normal. Masters don't do this. There is something different about how this master relates to his servants. It seems that his manner towards them is so good that the servant would joyfully and obediently wait, looking into the street, the street scanning the shadows to see when the master comes. And it's no surprise why. The image we get is that the master, as he comes home, he slips into a room comes back dressed in kitchen clothes and says to his servants, hey, I, I, I want to celebrate you. I want to celebrate you. Come and sit at my table. I know that might be weird, but I want to I wait on you. Can I get you something to drink? Can I get you something to eat? Let me ask you again. Why would the servant wait with such focus deep into the night? Well, because they have a good master who treats them like friends. And before Jesus summarizes and applies his teaching really um, to the people around him, he gives another illustration. Just as a heads up, uh, it might throw you because the character roles are actually changed. This time the master is at home. Have a look. It says this, but understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. In other words, if the master knew exactly when a thief would come, he would know exactly when to be at home. But the point is, who can know when a thief is coming? You can, I mean, unless it's a really bad thief, <laughs> he'll tell you, hey, be there at 6 p.m. 3 a.m. is better time. No experience. <laughs> Jesus goes on and he says, you must also be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at, a t at an hour when you do not expect Him. I'll say that again. You also must be ready 
because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. See, that is how Jesus applies his parable to those listening in. It's a call to a future-oriented focus on his return. Now, as we've just read, it's, it's a focus characterized by a posture of attentiveness, always conscious. It's characterized by a beautiful vision of the future, where the good master will care for his servants. It's characterized by an expectation for the unexpected, since the return date is unknown. That is the kind of focus Jesus is calling for. Now, it's at this point that I think you have to ask, well, why? Why? What makes this such a good way to relate to the future? Why should this be the focus priority of my life rather than anything else? Because if he's asking us to focus on his return like this, then it has to at least make sense. And based on what we read so far, I, I, I've come up with at least, two, at, at least two things. The first reason why it's a good way to relate to the future is because Jesus' return is real and impending. It's real and impending. Everything else in life is a mere pit stop along the way to that reality. You know, the ancient Greeks, the time of this, this writing, they thought time was cyclical. If it got bad enough, it'd burn and you have a new beginning. Jesus says time is linear and it's all leading towards the day of his return. Now, regardless of personality types, I think we can all agree that it's foolish to orient your life on something that's uh, unstable. Now, you, you always orient your life on things that are stable, a true, like a true north. Um, now, we can't say for sure when properties will, will grow, investments will rise, stocks will surge. But one thing we can say with certainty is that Jesus will return. He will return. Orient your life on a sure thing. And the second reason why it's a good way to relate to the future in this way is because anything you forsake for this focus is more than made up for by the end reward. Jesus said, it will be good for the servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. Invest Invest in the kingdom of God. Invest in the vision of Christ's return because the dividends are eternal. Now, the second way Jesus wants us to relate to the future is with a future-oriented alignment. Alignment, And it's in the second half of the passage we read that he moves away from focus language and he starts using language of, of, of managing, of preparing, ordering your life in alignment with his return. And it all happens because Peter asks him an interesting question. Here's what Peter says. He says, uh, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? It's like he's saying, uh, so, so is everyone a servant waiting for a master? Or is that just for disciples like us? Who is this about? So Jesus answers him. He uses another parable and he, and he starts by showing two choices a servant can make. In the master's absence. The first choice is, is faithful and wise stewardship. Have a look. Uh, verse 42 says, The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, 
he will put him in charge of all his possessions. I mean, do you notice what gets, gets celebrated here? The, the, the faithful and wise one is the one who does his master's will by managing his responsibilities. He was put in charge of servants, and that's exactly what the master found him doing. And as a result, he's honored. He's put in charge of even more. So that's the first choice, faithful and wise stewardship. Now, the second choice a, a servant can make in the master's absence is, is a calculated misuse of authority. Have a look, verse 45. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. Now we have to know, this is the same, this is the same context. It's the same situation as the last one. He's been given the same responsibility to manage the servants. However, that authority is used in an entirely different way. In fact, it's a calculated misuse of authority. And he notices that the, the master hasn't come back. And so he abuses the very things he was entrusted with taking care of. And here's the result in verse 46. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he, was, he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Now that is heavy duty. That is heavy duty. And it's just like the thief analogy. In fact, I think it's exactly parallel. He will come at an hour when he doesn't expect him. And in the same way that a thief in the night creates a state of exposure for a household, in the same way, the return of the master will expose the acts of the servant. And so Jesus uses a really graphic description of judgment to show just how serious this abuse of authority is. In fact, it's so serious and wrong that when Jesus brings them to justice, it'll be a devastating and permanent punishment. So that's the second choice a servant can make in his master's absence, a calculated misuse of authority. Now, I just want to take a step back from a moment from this and just ask, well, who would these people even be? Who would these people even be? I mean, after all, Peter was like, well, who are you talking to? Us or somebody else here in the crowd? And I think if we answer this now, it'll actually uh, help us understand how the rest of the passage really plays out. Understand the final few lines Jesus gives us. The first choice, which is a servant who knows the master's will and wants to obey, does obey, um, that's the first choice. He wants to be faithful and wise. Now, in many ways, that is so many of the people who are following Jesus, sticking their head into the teaching. It's the disciples and any of the crowd that choose to follow him. The second choice is a servant who knows the master's will, but uses their authority in a calculated and evil way. In terms of who that is, it's hard to look past the abusive leaders of the day, the Pharisees. And it's hard to think of a more stern way of warning them. This is it. So the first choice is good and is rewarded, and the second choice is evil and will be punished. Now, having said that, 
Jesus seems to zoom in on that first choice that we have here, the faithful and wise stewardship. And I think he does it because he wants to apply a principle to the lives of everyday Christians. Have a look at this. Verse 47, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. Can you see why it's an expansion of the first choice? It's in the language. It can't be the second choice because the language has no sense of final judgment. It's language of beaten with many blows or few blows. But it's not being cut to pieces. It's not being assigned a place with the unbelievers. See, what we have here in parable form is um, something much closer to the language of refinement that Scripture uses. Really similar to 1 Corinthians 3. Just quickly, this is written about Christians. It says, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though as one escaping through flames. Now that is a passage worth reading in your own time. It's, it's beautiful. But the basic point is that Christians are accountable for how they live their lives. And so coming back to our parable, it's worse to know the master's will and not do it than it is to not know his will and not do it. I'm going to say it again because I don't know if I get that. It is worse to know the master's will and not do it than it is to not know his will and not do it. Both are still less than ideal, but again, the point is that it matters how they live their lives. It's not a neutral thing. And just before we try and draw a concrete principle from that, Jesus seems to turn to the crowd again, and he summarized this part of his teaching just like he did earlier. Take a look. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. See, that is how Jesus applies this teaching. That is how Jesus answers Peter's question. He's saying to Peter, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. I'm calling for an alignment between what you know about my will and then how you live. You see, Jesus equates knowing his will to being given or entrusted with something. And if you're a Christian, that's you. That's you. And so the question then becomes, well, what has he entrusted you with? Well, the manager in the parable was entrusted with with others and the allowance of the food. But what about you? Well, here's a few questions I might help you figure that out. Is there something that God has given you a gospel-driven conviction for? Has God put anyone in your life that is under your spiritual care? Is there a particular gift that God has given you? What has God shown you about faithful service? What is the vision of the life you get? What is the vision of life that you get when you read the scriptures? What is the vision of church you get when you read the scriptures what is the vision of discipleship you get when you read the scriptures and as you already have 
What does it look like for you to faithfully align your life to what you've already been entrusted with? That is the question we ask ourselves as we wait for the return of Jesus. Now, again, I want to ask, what makes this a good way to relate to the future? Why this Jesus? If Jesus is asking us to align ourselves to his return, it has to make sense. And just because I'm short on time, I'll offer one suggestion, though there's obviously many. <laughs> the first way, the first reason, I guess, the only reason I'll give that it's a good way to relate to the future is because it'll save you from wasting your life. It'll save you from wasting your life. Ooh, the water's spilling. See, it'd be such, of a, such a waste of your life if you managed everything well except the one thing that really mattered, what your master entrusted you with. I mean, all of us are managing something. Some of you manage businesses, big groups of people, small groups of people, yourself, your own thing, your household, your kids. Everybody's managing something. But first and foremost, Christians have their focus set on their master and align their lives to his priorities, not the other way around. And just to close, I want to return to where we started. I, I, I shared that there's, there's really four ways that people tend to relate to the future. You have the dreamers, the futurists, the avoiders, the reactors. And I just want to finish with an, an encouragement to you, wherever you fit into those categories. For the dreamers among us, keep dreaming about the return of the master. Keep dreaming. Dream of what it will be like to sit with him, eat with him. But don't just leave it there. Let your vision be infectious. If you are a dreamer, let that be infectious. We need you. We need you. We need you to put your arms around the tide and say, hey, keep your lamp burning. Our master is coming soon. And he's a good master. For the futurists among us, those who obsess about it and they're good at planning for it, would you keep challenging us to align our lives to a future vision? We need you to lead the way in that area. To the avoiders, you probably see more clearly than anyone else that the night is dark. It's confusing and unpredictable. There are shifting shadows in the streets that threaten to steal our focus. We need you to help us see them. For the reactors who live largely in the present, show us what it looks like to be faithful for what we with, with what we have. Faithful with what we've been entrusted with in the here and now. Church, we need each other. We really do need each other. It, we're going to have blind spots. And if we're going to have a future-oriented focus and alignment on the return of Jesus, then we need to do it together as a household, a household of servants. Now, just finally, for the ones who say, I may be a futurist, dreamer, avoider, reactor, but I've never really considered Jesus like this. I just want to say this. Our passage today shares what it's like to be ready when you're in the master's house. In other words, when you've already identified yourself with the master. But getting ready for Jesus' return is, looks differently if you're outside the house and you haven't identified with the master. You see, the story of Jesus is that 
even though he was the master of all things, he left his place of honor to walk through the streets, meeting humanity in its brokenness, darkness, pouring his love and goodness into them. And as he walked through the streets, largely rejected by the people he came to love, he made his way to the cross on a hill. And on the cross, he died in the place of humanity. And as he rose again three days later, he said, be ready. Be ready because I'm coming again. And so for anybody who's willing, he invites you into his household. He invites you to be a servant. And he's waiting to serve you with his goodness. That's the goodness of Jesus. And that's the goodness of Jesus we hope and believe you'll see as you keep exploring that with us. In a few weeks' time, we're running Alpha. It's a chance to see who this Jesus guy even is, what it looks like to identify with him, and the difference it makes in your life. But otherwise, why don't we pray that we'd actually steward what we've been given. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you are a good, good master. You're the kind of master who has servants, but you wait on them. You serve your servants. How can that be? That is a beautiful thing. And Lord, we want to be ready for the day you come. We want to have our eyes fixed attentively on the day you return so that when you come, we can be found ready, found rejoicing. Lord, you know how each of us are wired and you know how each of us need to be challenged and our, our mindsets and perspectives adjusted to prepare for that day. But Lord, I pray that in the ways you've gifted us to think and relate to the future, help us to, the relate, help us to relate to the future in the way you call us to, with focus and alignment. Pray that that be true of us and that this would be a church where we help each other see each other's blind spots. Help us to get ready for that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.